welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters. With your questers, Josh and Dan. I am Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing all things entropical and quizzical, because we're going to talk about the entropy that is the hand of corruption. But first, we're going to get to a couple of emails, because we actually have a few emails today. So if you have any questions for us about anything at all, please contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. And we are off to the races. So our first email tonight is from Aaron. Hi, guys. As always, amazing job. I'm keeping up with the podcast and spreading the word of your good work to my fellow Barsavians. I have this idea for an adventure based on Stephen King's Needful Things, where the group go to a small up-and-coming town from a late opening care. Small enough that everyone knows everyone, but newcomers are flocking to the town to set up shop or earn a living, etc., a seemingly old and frail adventuring spellcaster, wizard or illusionist, undecided, sets up shop to sell off the items he has acquired through years of looting cares. Only these items are cursed in that they inspire tremendous need for them. And when in the possession of that particular person causes seemingly friendly and harmless people to do horrendous things that are completely out of character. The characters will arrive and witness one of the things that and be tasked with investigating and dealing with the problem. Now, I don't want to use the obvious horror taint for this. My characters have not come across much in the way of the passions, and I thought that maybe having one of them, mad passions, or the keys of death, be responsible would broaden their knowledge of the setting a little more. My question is, do the keys of death need to physically spill the blood themselves? Or could this spellcasting be fulfilling his duty by cursing the town into killing themselves? Also, is there a more suited mad passion or cult that would fit this NPC better, do you think? And why? Any suggestions are always appreciated. Many thanks, as always, and keep up the great work. Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate the email. Absolutely. Some good questions. Good idea there. I appreciate that you mentioned that you wanted to avoid the obvious horror connection. Yes! If you were not aware, there is a horror in the first edition horrors book called Giftbringer, <laughs> which is very, very strongly modeled after needful things so you can look to that for inspiration but it's not necessarily going to be something that ties in very well with your thing if you want to avoid the horror stuff there's nothing that specifically indicates that the member of the keys of death has to spill the blood themselves in order to further their cause I imagine that it's not too much of a stretch to have it set so that simply being involved in the activity that leads to the death would be enough, certainly if that's the one that's going to work particularly well. It's kind of a shame that this is something where this is clearly like a villainous plot, because the idea of name givers taking extreme actions in order to procure something would be right in Corollis's wheelhouse. But I agree. It is not usually something that that particular passion would go to the lengths of inspiring murder. I think the closest one, if you want to tie it to a passion, would probably be Ragok because of the connection with jealousy. And Ragok is also the one that kind of deals with brutal murder and sadism and that sort of stuff. So you might be able to tie that in as well as a possible avenue. 
Vestriol is known for connections with assassins, but this particular approach doesn't strike me as being something that is particularly deceptive or cunning or anything like that. It feels a, a bit more brutal. But yeah. yeah, the Keys of Death could work. I can't think of any other organizations off the top of my head. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Based on what we talk about later, I may change my mind on that. Nothing comes to mind as I am answering this question right this moment. But keep listening. But keep listening. Or if you want to go with a with a mad passion route, Ragok would probably be the one that, at least in my mind, most fits that plot framework. I'm not going to dispute that in any way, shape, or form. On to the next one from Andy. We're kind of doing these alphabetically. Aaron, Andy, whatever. Hi again, both. So as I emailed you a few podcasts ago with getting back in, you asked for an update, and we've ended up with Obsidian Warrior, Troll Weaponsmith, Troll Archer. That's a big group. They leave you a lot of big footprints behind. And a slight change, Elf Nethermancer. Orem Duskpool. I suck at character names. After much hemming and hawing, I decided the, to, the easiest way to avoid the overlap we were we were seeing was to try something a bit different. Never played a Nethermancer before and have to admit, really looking forward to it. Josh has in no way influenced this at all. Unfortunately, due to real life commitments, our session zero has happened, but we won't start actual play for three more weeks. Unusual for us is we have a regular weekly meet and in the last two years when I was GMing, we only had five missed sessions in total. So glad it's easier to do tabletop role-playing games online nowadays. Now to a few questions. He has four. We'll break these up. Before we get to that, I want to remind everybody, he was the one who wrote asking for advice on creating the character and avoiding overlap with the wizard with the other characters that were in the group. Right. Question one, how do adepts know, air quotes, what discipline they should learn? If multidiscipline doesn't, doesn't exist, I could see it as you were born to it. However, you could be an air sailor, another mancer from what I read. So is it just what you happen to end up learning to do? No, there is a certain kind of temperament that is usually sought by teachers, mm -hmm. by higher circle adepts when they are traveling and going to places. They keep an eye out for individuals that express themselves or that demonstrate traits that are in line with the philosophy and beliefs of their discipline, particularly as that adept would follow it. And so it's not necessarily something that the individual themselves knows offhand. And it's certainly possible that someone might try a couple of different things before they find the path that is suited for them. I think, and I'm not remembering super clearly because I actually haven't read it in a while. Mm -hmm. But I think in the original Adept's Way book, there are at least a couple of examples for how the individual writing the essay came to find the path. I think in the original first edition Companion, there was also where it's talking about the different rituals of advancement. I think that's the book it's in. Also talks about recruitment yes. and things like that. Um, so generally, it's a case of higher circle adepts while they are out and about in the world and doing their thing, keeping an eye out for potential candidates to initiate into the discipline. If you look at the original, the first Earthdawn novel, The Longing Ring, that includes 
Jerol's initiation into the thief discipline. And so there's a little bit that can be taken there. But generally speaking, remember that really multidiscipline characters are supposed to be kind of rare because of the difficulty often involved in reconciling what could be vastly different philosophies in order to unlock the magic associated with that. Certain adept types work better with each other than others do, but uh, a second discipline is something that generally tends to show up later in life for an adept once they have had some degree of mastery over their primary discipline, which would be something that is a lot more closely related temperamentally to the type of person that they are usually. Gotcha. Question two. Do adepts know they are adepts before they learn a discipline? If you have read The Wheel of Time, other channelers can detect with effort, same sex, etc., etc., that someone is a channeler. Is there something like this in Earth Dawn? Not really. In theory, it's possible if you have astral sight and perform an extensive amount of study of somebody's pattern that you like you could glean that they are an adept but i don't think there's anything really strongly canonical about being able to detect somebody's magical potential using a method like that and not everybody gets access to astral sight and the amount of work required in order to determine that sort of thing is pretty extensive so that wouldn't be something that is used very much at all when it comes to finding candidates fair question three uh the warrior talent and this actually might by the way be a duplicate from when we had the voicemail a few podcasts ago woodskin it reads he spends a recovery test and makes a woodskin test, adding the results of his health ratings for the woodskin rank in hours. Yeah, we've already covered this one, uh, asked and answered. Sorry about that. Yeah, this is the question that we had uh, two weeks ago as of yes. this episode. So episode 117, uh, mm-hmm. um, we had a voicemail that asked this very question about woodskin and the phrasing of woodskin <laughs> indicating that possibly the bonuses that it provides adds to the number of recovery tests and to wound threshold as asked and answered two weeks ago, which I think had not been released when we got this email um, or he might not have listened to it yet. Yeah. It only actually affects death and unconsciousness rating and the errata online has been updated to reflect that correction. (laughs) Fair enough. So uh, you came in second, Andy, on that one. Sorry about that. Question four in building your legend. I have to admit, I am slightly confused as to the legend point cost for increasing circle. I totally get the restrictions and requirements you need to meet the circle up, but how much does the getting the new discipline and optional talents cost? Am I right in thinking that, for example, going from circle one to circle two would cost 200 legend points? Circle four to circle five would be either three or 400 legend points if you buy a novice option or journeyman option, respectively. Uh, no. The actual advancement in circle does not cost any legend points whatsoever. Once you meet the qualifications for the new circle, so for example, you're a first circle character, once you have your, 
as the rules are written, five first circle discipline talents, all at rank two or better. You qualify for second circle. At that point, you just find somebody of second circle or higher of your discipline who agrees to train you, whether for money or favors or whatever, spend mm-hmm. the required time training, and then you are second circle and immediately pick up the durability increase, uh, the defense rating increase that everybody gets at second circle, the exact, which depends on what discipline you are. Totally. And then you have the ability to buy ranks in the new talent, the new discipline talent, and a new optional talent that is available at that circle. So when you get to second circle, you then can spend 100 legend points to raise your your second circle discipline talent, which for Nethermancers is Astral Sight? Maybe? I... Not sure off the top of my head, but it only costs, so it costs you 100 legend point to buy it at rank one, 200 to rank two. It's the same progression costs as advancing your talent ranks normally. Second second circle is Steel Thought. Steel Thought. Fair. Astral Is Astral Sight for a circle for them? Yes. And so what happens is that when you say go from fourth to fifth circle, so when you're, when you have your five, six, seven, eight discipline talents so five from circle one one each from circles two three and four all at rank five or better then you qualify for fifth circle again it doesn't cost you any legend points to make that advancement to journeyman you just need to find a trainer to train you to that point then you can buy your fifth circle discipline talent which would cost which would cost 200 legend points to go from zero to to rank zero talent to rank one because it's a, it's in the journeyman tier. And yes. when you select your optional talent at that point, you can either pick one of the choices from your journeyman options list, which is generally recommended because they are generally more useful. You get a bunch of new options that are generally good to have. Yeah. And that would cost you also 200 legend points to buy from rank zero to rank one. Mm-hmm. But there's no actual legend point cost associated with the actual circle advancement just time and whatever the cost the trainer decides to impose on you. You've qualified. You're done. Right. Go buy new stuff. There you are. Uh, Thank you. And in fact, uh, we have a follow-up email, our last of the day, uh, from Chris, who was the one who left us the voicemail from episode 117. So he decided to email us this time. Thanks for answering my last question on the voicemail. New player here, preparing my background and ideas and trying to understand rule systems as I tend to. The player's guide on thread magic talks about permanent pattern threads, which connect the magical patterns of people to people, places, or things. It talks about having to know key knowledges in order to weave threads. The Mystic Paths book talks about weaving a thread to a pattern, but does not describe them as permanent or pattern threads or key knowledges. It states that adepts thread rank to the path and their path talent rank are synonymous. That suggests that they aren't necessarily related to the discipline thread weaving skill, except as a test. Does an adept's thread rank act as a permanent pattern thread, counting against the limit of the discipline thread weaving skill in the way that thread items and group pattern items do? Short answer, yes. There you go, Longer answer, let me elaborate on this a little bit more (laughs) for everyone because the phrasing of his question was a little bit rough and I want to provide some context. Fair. Hit it. Every discipline gets the thread weaving talent at first circle. For everyone who is not a magician, all that the thread weaving talent really does 
is allow the character to weave permanent threads to usually magic items, but to anything that requires a permanent thread, a group pattern, anything along those lines. If you're doing kind of a story thing where you are weaving a pattern, uh, weaving a thread to a pattern item of an enemy or ally or place or whatever, those are permanent threads and they the maximum number of those that you can have is equal to your character's rank in thread weaving. So if you are have a thread weaving of five, you can have Mm -hmm. up to five permanent threads, whatever combination you want those to be in terms of magic items, permanent uh, group pattern threads, whatever. Joining a path while the phrasing in the book does not specify it is also a permanent thread as considered under those rules. So it will take up one slot and just one slot for the purposes of that. There's no real key knowledge advancement, unlike weaving a magic item, where you need to gain the key knowledge, learn what the question is, and then through adventuring or whatever, learn the answer and thereby be able to increase the rank of your thread with the item. The training and initiation and so forth that are done as part of your advancement in the path essentially gives you that key knowledge that you need in order to advance the rank of your thread with the group. Paths are kind of in this weird half space between group true patterns. They they kind of behave a little bit like that conceptually in that they are a true pattern that is created as a result of the members of this group. It just operates a little bit differently on some other levels, mainly to give access to special magical powers and abilities and neat stuff kind of as as an add-on to the discipline magic that they get as a result of adhering to the rules and restrictions and the oath that is involved in following the path. But it does take up one of those permanent thread slots. So just keep that in mind. And that's also why in some respects, like trying to load up on a bunch of paths, one, while difficult (laughs) to adhere and honor all of the O's and everything that you have going on there, but it also ends up in some ways, basically it's a trade-off for power. You need to kind of give up one of these limited resources in order to gain access to the additional abilities that the path grants you. Fair enough. So, uh, Chris, if that was clear as mud, feel free to follow up with (laughs) with a clarifying question one more time, but I hope that takes care of all of that for anybody else who has the same question. If you, of course, listeners, have any questions for us, as again, contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com, or as Chris did the first time, send us a voicemail. We'll plop that into the show. Everybody can hear your lovely voice instead of mine, and we'll be good to go. That ends the quizzical portion of this show, the first 20 minutes or so, and on to the entropical, and I don't mean tropical, I mean entropy part of the show, uh, as we get to talk about now, one of Josh's favorites, I believe, the Hand of Corruption. You've been waiting for this one, haven't you? The Hand of Corruption is great. (laughs) I think the structure of them is really interesting. I think that the essay, the chapter on them in Secret Societies is really well written and cool. And these are just a wonderful organization that can serve as a bad guy group in just about any campaign. They're a marvelous Unlike foil. some of the other organizations, which are a little bit more narrowly focused, the Hand of Corruption can conceivably get involved in just about anything. Yeah, th- this is a lovely foil. 
And top to bottom, you can have them be uh, brutes. You can have them be mad behind the scenes Machiavellian schemers. You can have a uh, a large cult involved in this whole thing. You can have just a few members involved in the basic plot that you're running for your campaign. So this is this is probably the most versatile we've come across so far. Yeah, they are really, I mean, when you say they are a, a perfect foil, they really are. If you consider <laughs> Earth Dawn as a game that is primarily about heroes that are working to reforge the connections between people that strive to push back the darkness and bring light to the world and to inspire others to do right and all of that sort of thing, the Hand of Corruption are an organization that ultimately believe that the world is doomed and that the best thing that they can do is to hasten its appropriate end. <laughs> this is real, like, Legion of Doom stuff. Yeah, this is the, the ultimate bad guys. That's it. I mean, seriously, as, as Josh said, uh, there are... The uh, the organizational hierarchy is built out into three different branches, and we'll get to those uh, details in a minute. Because one of them, of course, you know, the brokers, the assassins, pretty bad as a name, but the major one is the nihilists, and those are people who just want to bring about the end of everything. So, yeah, that's uh, they're not playing around. <laughs> Insert John Goodman Big Lebowski quote here. <laughs> But yes, the, the Hand of Corruption, uh, as laid out in the essay, is, by the way, linked to the Castle of Assassins in the Mist Swamps, if that's not enough for you right there. Uh, yeah. But they basically are dedicated to worshipping the passion, unproven passion, the passion of oblivion, which, by the way, is just pure entropy. Uh, just everything is going to come to an end. There you are. And they have a ritual magic spell practiced in the castle of assassins. And they also have the path associated with just the hand of corruption of becoming assassins to actually kill as many people as possible. So right there, that's almost enough to play with on yeah, its own. It's interesting. We talked about the keys of death a couple of weeks ago and how they are in a way a murder cult, a death cult dedicated to killing people <laughs> in pursuit of a particular objective. And that yeah. objective being the release of death, setting death free from its prison beneath death's sea. Yeah. We then have the Hand of Corruption with its assassins organization, which is also dedicated to murdering people as frequently and as often as possible, but philosophically coming at it from a very different place. Yeah. Rather than in service of this death cult that is trying to release their master mm -hmm. in perhaps the hope of being rewarded when that happens. The Hand of Corruption is just like killing people, like releases them from the bonds of this world. It doesn't really come up too much in, in the essay, but it, you can like really get esoteric if you dive into oh, yeah. Gnostic theology and stuff like that. <laughs> if you look at a game like, say, Mage the Awakening, 
Oh, yeah. Which also dives into a very similar kind of idea that the world is a prison and that we are all sort of being held here against our will. And that if you take that in a dark direction, then perhaps the kindest thing that you can do to people is to release them from that prison. Mm-hmm. There is some potentially weird stuff that can go on here. What makes them even more interesting in that regard, though, is that there is theoretically something that resembles a coherent philosophy behind it that is put together by the nihilists. Mm -hmm. Again, nihilism as a philosophy does not appeal to me in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) No. That's not completely true. I deal with depression and stuff like that. And there are times that that... We all have our days. Seems appealing, but thematically within the the game of earth dawn at least as its sort of default mode is indicated the nihilists kind of stand in opposition to everything that adepts and heroes are striving for yeah in the essay it's revealed later on in the essay almost near the very very end that uh this person who was trying to infiltrate the hand of corruption and see what they were up to and report back to thera was indoctrinated to the truth air quotes of the nihilist philosophy that yes along with everybody else they've realized that the cycle of the earth is high magic at some point low magic is at other points and that the horrors are a natural manifestation of that and so what the horrors do is they come in wipe everything clean like a forest fire and then retreat back and let life come anew again and by hiding in the cares which was a theron plot we disrupted that cycle. We actually extended our stay. Instead of starting anew, we just kind of, you know, went to part two or part B or the next part after the scourge. And so that's where the, the hand of corruption says, no, no, that was against the rules. We broke all the rules and we shouldn't all be here. So therefore we should all die. Let the horrors come back in and do what they were supposed to do. Right. <laughs> so that's the nihilist right there. But yeah. one of the interesting things about this, We'll talk about the nihilist real briefly and how the essay follows this agent's progressive infiltration of the organization, starting off with the brokers, which is sort of like the most diverse one. Yeah. Then entering in and the assassins and learning their trade and then facing the nihilists and the indoctrination that happens. It is implied in some respects and, and backed up a little bit by the text in a way, the nihilists actually have the power. They are so far advanced in the beliefs of the organization. Mm -hmm. The magic that they have at their command as a result of that is actually capable of harming people. Like there is a, a kind of damage that is done, psychic damage to individuals that are under their sway. They can use it to break down the will of their chosen target and Mm. convert them to the cause. (laughs) Well, how else do you recruit? I mean, come on. If you show them the truth, air quotes, then yeah, of course they're going to believe you. I actually want to make another call out here real quickly. First off, the series on Disney+, Plus, The Moon Knight Mm. series that is running on Disney Plus right now. Yes. First off, it is amazing. 
the Disney Plus TV shows have been generally really, really strong. Yeah. But the Moon Knight one is one unexpectedly amazing and exploring some really deep, weird psychological stuff. But the bad guys in that Harrow, played by Ethan Hawke, who I've been a fan of for decades. Oh, totally. Is one amazing. But that organization and his philosophy in that is something that could very, very easily be tweaked to be a hand of corruption organization. Yeah, totally. So that just came to mind because of that thing is like in the forefront of my brain. Well, we always try and call out pop culture references for people to use. Yeah. Uh, as a, as a, Frame of reference, haha, references. Um, just as a example, to go. Okay, I see how this is working here. Let me port it into Earthon because I didn't quite quite understand how this one's working as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting that they just think that um, the world is irredeemably corrupt and must be destroyed so that nature, aka the horrors, can reclaim the earth and start anew. Like I said, like a forest fire. But yeah, the three branches, as Josh pointed out, the brokers. We'll, get, we'll start with there. Uh, are probably the most often encountered for any of the of your player characters to come across. They operate behind the scenes. They're not really combatants. They're not really adepts. If they are, it's pretty low circle. Uh, they openly avoid conflict, uh, but they do work behind the scenes to sow the seeds of dissent and trouble. This is kind of like the other, maybe the third network of spies that we've come across so far. So if you haven't dealt with any kind of spies in your game so far, why not? We've got like three different <laughs> organizations or yeah. all of these different spy networks, and now we're onto our third one. Again, this is a spy network more in the sense of where they can leverage the information that they gain to break down the fabric of society. We talked a little bit several weeks ago about the Ragok cult that yeah. is operating in the Western Kakovic Mountains, which has a similar kind of idea in terms of its goal of breaking down societies and removing the trust that people have in their leaders and whatnot. There's a different philosophical underpinning to what they are doing. And it's a smaller scale organization like this particular group is dedicated mainly to undermining Thrall. Yeah. But the brokers are equal opportunity kind of thing. Like where the other organization is one that would be kind of suited to a medium scale thing. Like they strike me as a group that could actually be defeated. Mm -hmm. The hand of corruption and the, and the brokers are a lot more wide spanning in terms of what they can do and difficult to really put a stop to when it comes to that. Like you might defeat an individual plot, but their overarching goals are so broad and there are in some ways so many of them that there's no real way ultimately to eliminate them. So more so than the Crown Breakers, which is the- Yes, the, the Crown Breakers is, is the organization. Yeah. 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 My mind slipped on it as well. <laughs> yeah, the Crown Breakers feel like a group that is a little bit smaller scale and one that could actually be sort of defeated as part of a campaign or, or campaign arc. Whereas yeah. the hand of corruption would really be a much higher tier 
organization in terms of your ability to take them out or take them down. Like, again, you could, at lower circles, foil individual plots, but you would not be cutting the head off the serpent in a way. No, this is more like Hydra. Cut a small head off, two more grow back in its place. <laughs> For another slightly pop culture reference. So the second tier, uh, as we said, the broker's most often encountered, if you can maybe get through that little tiny network to see who's maybe be pulling their strings, um, you go up to the level of the assassins. And this, the assassins, of course, like I said, are trained in the castle of assassins in the mist swamps. So super duper secretive, uh, very hard to find. These are the people who seek out people to kill, to further the destabilization of society and cause its downfall. Uh, so again, more entropy. Uh, these are almost always adepts, scouts, thieves, warriors, whatever, what have you, uh, mostly scouts, thieves, and warriors, uh, mostly also fifth circle or above. So they're very, you know, adept at what they do. And they really love the poisoned weapons and there's a killing ritual involved. Yes. This is another case where there is some similarity between organizations. In this case, the ritual that the assassins of the Hand of Corruption perform is different than the one that the Keys of Death perform. The Keys of Death, their ritual is all involved in the preparation and the presentation and dressing themselves up in the robes and the hood, taking on the mantle of... yeah. The paraphernalia. Uh, the paraphernalia. And the actual death itself, the only real ritualistic aspect of that is the belief that the, that the blood should be spilled on actual ground. Yeah. Whereas with the Hand, Hand of, of corruption. corruption, their ritual is the after, is sort of in the aftermath of that. They are less concerned with how they achieve the killing as mm -hmm. they are in showing in what they do with the body afterwards in terms of laying it out and doing various dark, uncomfortable organs removed and placed around and whatever. And it has that there's to this kind the of celestial pattern in the sky of the stars. Yeah, like there's this kind of ritualistic aspect of how they deal with the body afterwards and the act of performing that ritual, the act of taking the life gives them some magical power to boost their ability to conceal themselves while they are performing this kind of post-death ritualistic aspect. Yeah. They are equal opportunity. They blade, they really like poisons, but, you know, whatever method they can use to end their targets, they will take advantage of. They are not quite as choosy as the keys of death are. Yeah. So we, we there was a, sorry, you made a, assimilation of a serial killer with the keys of death. Do we have something along the lines here as well? I think it's still a very similar thing. I mean, part of what's going on with the hand of corruption and the assassins is the message that they are sending in the aftermath of the death. Yeah. The keys of death are not especially concerned with how their murders will affect the society around them. Yeah. That's not what their focus is. Their focus is on 
performing the killing and spilling the blood in order to further the freeing of death. Whereas the Hand of Corruption, their objective is to make the death, in a sense, as public and messy and nasty as possible in its own way, in order to hasten the collapse of society that they feel was supposed to have happened during the scourge. Yeah, fair. Uh, On to the nihilists, which we've covered a little bit of uh, here and there. These are the ones that have the absolutely fanatical beliefs, the most dangerous practices, very few of which are adepts, but they don't need to be because they're pulling all the strings behind the assassins and the brokers and everybody else. But they have, to Josh's point, that psychic power of, air quotes, truth that makes believers and converts out of those who are initiated, inducted, or investigating, or trying to subvert and whatnot. So these are the ones that are really behind everything else, and it is their worldview of all members of the hand believe that what they are doing will bring about the naturally ordained destruction of a hopelessly tainted world, because anybody who's alive in in Bar Save at this point is the taint. We're the aberration. We're the part of the pattern that is defying the pattern because we should have all been wiped out by the scourge. And since we're here and we're not wiped out, that's the aberration that needs to be taken care of. So that's how they, that's the nihilist worldview is that's what needs to be corrected. Yeah. And since they are worshiping the passion oblivion as a passion, there's no recorded proof that there ever was a passion of oblivion, but they believe there is. And so that's, the other misguided part of their uh, cult-like worship on they are to bring about the end of the world based upon this belief that they can't prove. Yeah. Let's talk about some more pop culture references, (laughs) because I find it it a lot easier to make these comparisons that people can look at as inspiration. Because one of the things that gets talked about in the essay is the care that you want to use if you're going to be using the hand of corruption as an antagonist organization in the campaign not to make them mere faceless villains yeah just bad guys doing bad things just bad guys doing bad things and that's the case really with a lot of these antagonist organizations you really want to focus on the reasons why they are doing what they are doing because those motivations will help drive the stories that you tell or highlight the themes that you might be trying to bring about in your campaign or something like that. There are superficially a lot of similarities between the keys of death and the assassin wing of the hand of corruption, but because they have different philosophies and different ways of approaching things, they actually should result in different adventures or different feels to the adventures that they're involved with. Yeah. The hand of corruption and the crown breakers are both dedicated to the idea in some respects of the collapse of society and the true nature of the way that things are, but because of their motivations, one being a superficially refined (laughs) philosophical belief, and the other being the drives of an insane, powerful spiritual being, again, Mm -hmm. will result in very different situations. But let's say for some pop culture references, Ozymandias from Watchmen. Oh, there you go. 
the plan that he has, whether you're looking at the original comics version or the film version, mm-hmm. um, where the plans are are different, has a very strong philosophical underpinning to it that there's he's doing this evil thing, this villainous plot, but believes that he is sort of doing it for good reasons, that ultimately the success of his plan will come about and result in a better world. In the case of the Hand of Corruption, that better world is really the resumption of the appropriate cycles of nature that was interrupted by the Therans and their rights. Another example uh, from the Serenity, from the movie uh, from Firefly, the the operative. operative. (laughs) I was going to bring him up. (laughs) Yeah, is also very appropriate for a villainous character who has a very strong core belief. He's the one who's like, the world that we are building does not have a place for people like me. Yes, I won't be living in it. I'm just going to help create it. But I'm just going to help create it. Yeah. Moriarty from the Robert Downey Jr., Sherlock Holmes Holmes movies is also he's a little bit more brokery than nihilist, but he still has a very the world is the way that it is. I am just kind of speeding things along Mm -hmm. and maybe profiting a little bit while I'm at it. But there is still a very like intelligent reasoned as twisted as we might find those beliefs and that reasoning. There is at least still some kind of thought process behind it. And so one of the things that you really want to think about if you're going to be using the hand of corruption is the motives. What is the ultimate end goal? Understanding with their philosophy, grand scheme wise, what's going on, but how is any individual plot going to further this end? That there will be a logical for a certain definition of that. Yeah. Series of progressions where they will take this action that will have this consequence that will lead to X, Y, or Z that will further their ultimate goals in terms of everything. Yeah. So those are some uh, examples, you know, supervillains like Magneto, in some respects, his philosophy and his idea and his beliefs that, you know, mutants and normal homo sapiens will not be able to survive together, Mm -hmm. um, will not be able to live together in in coexistence, kind of in contrast to Professor X's philosophy. Yes. Lex Luthor, when he's not being stupidly obsessed about Superman. (laughs) Yes. A lot of, of like the really sort of intelligent... Bad guys. Planning bad Mm -hmm. guys kind of things can be used as inspirations where you really, what you'll want to do with the hand of corruption that is not necessarily something that you would see, say, with the keys of death, yeah. is to have individual characters, individual NPCs and antagonists that the player characters develop a relationship with over the course of things. And maybe even those moments where they are in a situation where they can't just draw steel and stab somebody, that mm-hmm. they need to have this interplay and this interaction there's a lot of potential for really strong characterizations and rivalries that can come about as a result of that. Well, and, and just that character moment of, oh, crap, what what do I do? I think ultimately, in the case of the Hand of Corruption, what you need to do is you need to put a stop to them. <laughs> but you should at least have him hesitate for a minute. Yeah, but I think that what you could can kind of start with early on is maybe have that 
NPC, that antagonist, not necessarily be presented as an antagonist early on. That the agent of the hand of corruption, whether that's a broker or maybe an assassin, assassins tend to be higher circle. Yeah. Or maybe even introduce an assassin early on in the campaign who's just, you know, kind of in some ways too tough for the group to really take down. That with their appropriate magics and whatnot, their, you know, bonuses and magic items and things like that, that the group doesn't really have much of a chance to do something decisive against them. Or just can't catch them. You just can't catch them. You can't hurt them enough to or stop them from doing what they're doing. Use that as the beginning of a sort of long-term rivalry yeah. Where perhaps even the assassin like recognizes their skill and ability and mm-hmm. is like, you're wrong. You know, what you are doing is merely prolonging the suffering of the world by putting a stop to this. But I recognize your skill and honor your devotion to your Sorry. cause in yeah. this. But ultimately, the world is doomed and you are only delaying the inevitable. <laughs> If you are a game master who really likes playing a character, having a character in a sense that you are playing, not yeah. as a GM PC, but as a villain, as a character where you really get to like dive into the role. Those of us mm-hmm. who are actors and improvisers and, and voice people really mm-hmm. like doing yeah. that. A Hand of Corruption <laughs> Rivals is a fantastic way to indulge yourself oh yeah go make your master assassin seventh circle whatnot and and have them tease the players every once in a while uh and we're weave in all those subplots over many many adventures that the he's always he she that assassin's always one step ahead of the your adventuring group and eventually they have to you know meet up with them go rounds and and you know resolve things so that just makes it more worthwhile. Uh, since this is all about entropy and the power of oblivion, I have uh, one quote to give that I found in a book many, 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 many years ago. Entropy requires no maintenance. That is true. <laughs> and so I find the hand of corruption just like, you don't really have to work that hard, guys. <laughs> entropy does everything for you. So that's just my thought there. Uh, any final thoughts? Because we've covered a lot of ground in the hand of corruption. Um, as, again, ripe for the using. Yeah. In any level you want to. You know, with some of the other organizations we've talked about how you might use them in the campaign, the Hand of Corruption just make a great general purpose organization of bad people doing things Mm -hmm. that you could use. If you are looking for a sort of through line in a campaign where you want to, to have something that is not quite as simple a bad guy situation like you have with the horrors or you have with some of the other organizations, the hand of corruption, like I said, can give you an opportunity to really explore some themes and ideas. And their organization is in some ways so extensive that you can kind of have them be a, a long-term adversary for a group. Absolutely. So on that note, folks, we will kind of wrap this one up here and see you next week. So if you have any questions for us, once again, please contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, it's time to go fight the hand for your legend. Good night, everybody. <laughs>